We read this morning from the 1689, as is our habit, and uh, this happened to be on prayer, which, um, as God would have it, is also where we land in our study in the book of Hebrews on the topic of prayer. We read that prayer with thanksgiving is an element of natural worship, and so is required by God of everyone. Because that is true, uh, it was our sincere intention this morning during our Sunday school hour to uh, devote ourselves to prayer, Um, and uh, we uh, hope that we can do that uh, the last Saturday of every month, because it is, uh, oh sorry, Sunday of every month, thank you. Uh, uh, The the importance of prayer is also what drives us to um, turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 13, so take your Bibles, turn there, Hebrews 13. We're looking at verses 18 to 19. I want to say that we're in the home stretch of the book of Hebrews, where the writer focuses our attention, if you remember, on four Christian obligations of the spiritual runner in the race of faith. Four spiritual obligations. And these are obligations that the believer has to Christ, to no one other but to Christ. All of us are obligated to carry out our faith in this very specific way. The first, if you remember, is identification. We talked about identifying with Christ, confessing him before men, standing for him here on this earth. The second is sacrifice. And we are living sacrifices. We sacrifice self all the time. We carry our crosses daily. The third was submission. We submit to the lordship of Christ. And of course, then we submit, as Christ would have us, to his under-shepherds. And that's what we talked about last time. This last obligation in the series of four, uh, in our personal relationship to God, that we consider now, is supplication. Supplication from verses 18 and 19. And I want to tell you up front that there are three principles that I would like to rehearse with you uh, as we go through these two verses. Okay, three principles from uh, verses 18 and 19. And I'll let you know when we get to each of them. First, first we look to the command to pray in verse 18. The writer says, pray for us, pray for us. Now, in this context, pray means really to intercede for God's under-shepherds. It's really talking about intercession. In other words, the writer wants us to go to God in prayer and intercede on behalf of our church leaders, our shepherds. Now, we'll examine later in the verse exactly what the writer wants us to petition God for, But before we get there, I want us to pause just for a moment over this command to pray. Prayer has got to be one of the most important parts of our spiritual lives. No question about it. Would you agree? One of the most important. Paul himself follows up his great section on the armor of God in Ephesians 6 with this. He says, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. We commune with God through prayer. We battle the good fight prayerfully. We overcome worry um, partly by praying for the future rightly. We petition God for deliverance uh, 
for the success of our ministries and the ministries of our co-laborers in Christ. Prayer is so important that the Holy Spirit assists us when we pray and even speaks for us when we don't know how to put our, our thoughts into words. More than this, the Lord Jesus Christ interprets our prayers aright to the throne of God the Father. We're called to pray without ceasing. We're called to pray in faith believing. Jesus prayed. And he put a premium on prayer. He even gave us instructions on how to pray, Matthew 6. There's so much that we can say about prayer, but we just haven't the space to do justice to it. So perhaps, perhaps it's enough just to make the observation that the writer and ultimately the Holy Spirit commands us to pray. And that makes it extremely important in our Christian lives. How are we doing in our prayer life? That's a very important question that the text really asks us at this point. It's our Christian responsibility. And yet it has to be one of the most deficient areas of the Christian life. Beloved, don't underestimate the power and the importance of prayer in our race of faith. It's a vital component to spiritual uh, maturity and victory. Now, as to the request itself, pray for us. The writer obviously includes himself in this command, but who are the others? Who, who is the us here? We know that the Apostle Paul had an entourage, right? A posse of spiritual companions that he personally put together, some of whom he even led to Christ, like Timothy and Titus. There were others that accompanied him as well on his missionary journey. And those are obviously the ones that Paul asked his churches to pray for along with himself when he says on several occasions, pray for us. But we don't know enough about this writer to know whether or not he has his own squad of co-laborers or what his ministry was for that matter. We don't even know his identity. Well, in verse 18, we find a clue as to the us, who the us most likely is. Remember, he just finished talking about showing loyalty to our chief shepherd by submitting to his under-shepherds, right? For the Jewish Christians of this struggling church, that would have, would have been the current leadership that had reached out to this writer for help. He and they loved this church, and apparently they shared oversight and ministry responsibilities of this church, just as Paul shared with every elder board that he personally set up um, in the churches that he founded throughout his missionary journeys. So the writer of Hebrews requests of these drifting, struggling Christians that they pray for the job that he shares with their current body of elders in ministering to them. Now, this writer tells them that they need to pray for both him and their elders who are of one accord in their goal to minister to this church. Together, he and the elders desire the same thing, to bring these believers back to spiritual center. So that's why he says, pray for us. So we see the command to the church to pray. We see the subject of their praying. It's their leadership, and the writer includes himself in it. 
But what exactly were they supposed to ask God for? What exactly was the content of their prayer? Well, the writer tells us now in the form of a reason. He already gave one reason back in verse 17 for why they should submit to their leadership. Remember, it was because the leadership had had to give an account to God at the end of time for how they shepherded. And that's certainly a reason that this church should pray for them. But here, in verse 18, the writer gives them another specific reason to pray. And here it is, because we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. As we argued in our our last study on submission, this group of elders were being faithful to God in their calling to shepherd this flock, keeping close watch over each one as best they could, encouraging them, rebuking, helping, instructing, training in righteousness. They were godly, conscientious elders who loved God by loving God's people in this sacrificial and caring way. The writer includes himself as one who also cares for the saints of this church. And his ministry, well, it's slightly different than theirs. Since he cannot be with them, he had to rely on their reports and then do his level best to compose a letter that would hopefully make a difference in the lives of the members as they heard it read in one of their assemblies. And what a letter it turned out to be. In two years, or in our two years of studying it, we've seen how he takes to task every point of their divergence from orthodox apostolic truth by countering it with Old Testament scripture. He strategically places several admonitions through his love letter, at times rebuking them, then teaching them, praising them, encouraging them, warning them, and exhorting them. No doubt he prayerfully considered how he might compose this letter in a way that would persuade drifting saints to get serious for Christ again and remain serious. And to make sure that they understood the spirit in which he sent this letter, he mentions that his conscience is clear about what he wrote and that his letter was backed by a sincere desire to conduct himself honorably. The same can be said for his fellow elders. They, too, had been ministering to this church on an ongoing basis in all good conscience. And no matter what the church thought of their leaders, the writer assures the church that these guys desire to conduct themselves honorably in their shepherding as well. Now, before we look at verse 19, it would be helpful to pause here and see two important principles working out in verse 18 and should be active in our lives as well. Two principles. Here's the first one. First one is simply this. Make it a habit to solicit the prayers of those that you counsel out of problems and struggles. Make it a habit to solicit the prayers of those that you counsel or help out of problems and struggles. 
Let me develop that for you. The, writer, the writer's epistle, you might say, is a form of counseling for his congregation, right? Can you see that? It's a form of counsel. What he wrote, he surely would have spoken to them and discussed it with them if he were in person. No doubt, no doubt about that. He, if he were in person, what he said, or what he would say, would be nothing more, nothing less than what he wrote. And I want you to see this letter that way. It's his attempt to counsel them. It was a love letter, you might say, to those saints that the writer cared deeply about and wanted to prevent from shipwrecking their faith. So upon discovering what their struggles were, and, and that, the, that they were starting to drift, he confronts their thinking and behavior with the Word of God and brings it to bear on this situation in this letter. His hope is that the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts through his letter and use of Old Testament Scripture to bring about repentance and lasting change in them. Okay, so far, so good. You say, I understand that. Makes sense. All right, now understand this. He purposely makes his goal clear to them. Do you see that? He doesn't hide his intention. That is what he's doing. He's not cryptic about what he's doing, nor does he sugarcoat anything, as is the habit of many modern ministers and ministries. He tells them plainly what he hopes to achieve in their lives by ministering the word of God to them. And in doing this, he actually involves them in this counseling process. What do I mean by that? Well, he says in essence this. It's my sincere hope in sending this letter to you that it will minister to your hearts, convict you where necessary, and lead you to biblical change in your thinking and behavior. So pray that I am successful in my effort to accomplish this in you. That's basically what he's saying. Can you imagine yourself saying that to a Christian that is perhaps entangled in some sin that you're, you're wanting to restore him from? Well, the writer can, and he does. And he wants them to pray for the effectiveness of his letter as they consider it. And here we see the, the outworking of this wonderful principle. I'll restate it for you in, an, in other terms. Shepherds, teachers, deacons, any Christian who disciples others should make it a habit to solicit the prayers of those that they counsel out of problems and struggles. See, the writer joined forces with the shepherds here this, of this local church to counsel these drifting saints. And he gives them this prayer request. He says, pray that we're successful in our attempts to turn you around. As uneasy as that might sound to you, let me assure you that it's a great way to strengthen troubled believers who lack confidence in the Word of God. When they start asking God to work through His Word in their lives, they cannot help but become more confident in His Word. They see how confident you are in it as well. More than that, they also become responsible in the counseling process. 
You involve them in the process of their own change. Think how effective that could be. A rebellious Christian will be greatly convicted if he's put in a position where he's expected to actually pray that God would get through to him and that his Bible teacher and counselor would get through to him. As far as the writer is concerned, these churchgoers are a large part of the process of godly change, of their own change. They're responsible to make godly change where necessary, and the shepherds were there to guide them and show them how to listen and how to depend upon the Holy Spirit. So it makes all the sense in the world that the writer should have them pray for their own change, for the Holy Spirit to work in their own lives, and for the counseling efforts of the writer and the elders. Let's make it more personal to us. Whether you're a full-time Christian worker, a pastor, a chaplain, a deacon, a missionary, or none of the above, but you're someone who teaches the Word of God regularly to others as a discipler, a parent, a spouse, make it a point to have those on the receiving end of your counsel and instruction pray that you're successful in helping them change. Say to them, pray for me as I minister the word of God to you, and that the Holy Spirit will bless my efforts to work together with you to solve your problems. J. Adams, the father of biblical counseling, explains in his commentary on Hebrews at this point that by incorporating those that you're trying to help, your counselees, into their own counseling, the counselee, quote, assumes responsibility for the counseling rather than laying all the responsibility on you. From the outset, he sees that his part in the success of counseling is to bring the Lord into the picture through prayer, and that if he does so, he must go to the Lord in a proper manner, that he may require repentance and humility on his part, end quote. By the same token, those of us who give others in the church timely counsel from God's word, we should also be true to our word when we say to them that it is our sincere desire to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. We should have no hidden agendas, and we should allay any fear on the part of those that we counsel. They need to be convinced that we're confidential, and also above board in all our exhortations and admonitions and explanations and encouragements. So, solicit the prayers of those that you are counseling out of problems and struggles. Here's the second principle. Now, it too is not restricted to leadership. It applies across the board to all Christians fighting the good fight of faith. But this one, this one is foundational. It's foundational. All biblical principles are, of course, important to the Christian life, but where some apply just to specific situations, like the one we just talked about, others apply to all areas of life. They're comprehensive. For example, if you were with us last time, you remember the foundational principle that we pulled out of verse 17. We said, live your life knowing that you will have to give an account to God for it at the end of history. Now, that's pretty foundational. 
That applies across the board. That's revolutionary. Well, this next one is also on par with that. It goes like this. Make sure that you have a clear conscience in all that you do before God. Make sure you have a clear conscience in all that you do before God. Now, why is this foundational? Why is that revolutionary? Because it affects every aspect of our living. It's comprehensive. The conscience is that part of our mind that is involved in determining every decision that we make, right or wrong, moral or immoral. I would say that's pretty comprehensive. Our conscience is like a, an alarm system that tells us when we're safely within the boundaries of morality and righteousness and when we're about to transgress them. Now, for us, it's important to understand that we're talking about a sanctified conscience. A sanctified conscience. That is, a conscience of a believer. The Bible teaches that unbelievers are depraved. We know that. And depravity affects the mind and the conscience. If you want to make a distinction between the two, it really makes no difference. If you do, then depravity affects both the mind and the conscience. The fall damaged the human thought process. Theologians call this the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic comes from the Greek word for mind, nous, which is in some way distorted in the fall, became limited in its ability to make sound observations. More specifically, unbelievers will never see the word of God as being absolute in the area of morality and spirituality, will never take it at face value or believe it and appropriate it because God's ways are basically foolish to them. It is foolish to the depraved mind. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. The unbeliever's epistemology, that is how he determines what he knows to be true, it's rooted not in scripture but in something else. Tradition, human wisdom, humanism, religion, philosophy, science, superstition, speculation, feelings, you name it, it's there. The believer's conscience, however, has been redeemed. We have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to understand his word. That means that our conscience will surely confirm us when we're in the will of God and convict us when we're not. Or when we're in danger of crossing the line of temptation into sin. But here's the catch. The redeemed conscience is only as effective as its contents. Only effective or as effective as its contents. The more of the sound understandings of biblical truth you dump into your conscience, the more reliable your conscience will be in directing you, directing you biblically, in confirming your thoughts and actions, and convicting you of wrong thoughts and actions. So it's very important that we feed our conscience with biblical truth. Our conscience is only as effective 
as its contents. And as we do feed it, it's important that we don't violate our conscience once it's full. By that I mean we don't override our conscience when it convicts us. We shouldn't. Don't try to convince yourself that you're right when you know when you're wrong. Or rationalize why you should act on sinful motives or reinterpret scripture to suit sinful courses of action. We don't want to violate our conscience. To say that positively, it's so very important that we have a clear conscience. Do you have a clear conscience? Well, what is that? Well, it's the proverbial green light that conscience gives you to engage in something or to abstain from something. Knowing what we know to be true about our conscience and how it works, we arrive at a clear conscience by evaluating what we're about to do by Scripture. We go there first to determine God's will for us in a particular area. And once we know it, then we can apply it. The reason this is so important is that it will give us the confidence that we need to do God's will in a particular context when we know people will reject us and ridicule us for it. Maybe, maybe even slander us. Slander us for doing the word of God. That's why we need confidence. I remember the time when I was just six months into my pastorate, and a couple who were members approached me to tell me that I was going to marry their daughter, who, was just re who just recently got pregnant by her boyfriend. I mentioned that I, 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 I couldn't do anything until I met with them to see what the situation was. I had a 13-week premarital counseling course in which we determined three things, at least three things, but these are the major things. Does God want me to marry? Number two, if so, does he want me to marry this person? And number three, if so, when? Three important questions. I told her that we have to answer these questions for starters, after which I reserve the right not to marry anyone unless I can recommend the two to each other in all good conscience. The mother saw no problem with this and was sure I would agree because, well, there was a baby involved. I told her that a baby is not a good reason to get married. Because kids don't make a marriage. And just because they are Christians doesn't necessarily mean they must marry each other. And that's when she told me that he wasn't a Christian. And saw that, saw that as a technicality because, again, there was a baby. I told her that the way to right one wrong is not to commit another and until we could be convinced that he is a believer, and even then he'd need time to be brought up to speed, I could not marry any Christian to an unbeliever. God forbids it, 1 Corinthians 7.31. I also assured her that there is no shame in learning how to be a godly single mom. Well, you would have thought that I had committed some criminal act by the way she carried on after that. She caused a lot of commotion in the church, and the leadership bunch that I inherited, well, they didn't like it one bit. They asked me if I was sure about my stance and if I should 
call around to other local pastors and ask them what they would do. I told him that there was no need for that and that I was positive in the stance that I took. My conscience was clear. People didn't like it, but the die was cast that day. We would obey God rather than man and do it with a clear conscience. And we did. We find quite a number of references from Paul and Peter and John about conducting their ministry with a clear conscience. Let me be as straightforward as I can and tell you that and tell you why it's so important for you to conduct your life with a clear conscience. Here's why. As long as you are convicted, uh, convinced rather, that you have God's pleasure and approval on a particular decision that you are making, the whole world could be against you, including your church, and it won't make a bit of difference. When God is for you, who can be against you, right? But if your decision-making is tailored to suit the tastes of others, then you will not even be able to put your head down on the pillow at night and sleep well, not if you're a conscientious believer. Acting on clear conscience amounts to wisdom, you see, and when you do the biblical, biblically wise thing, the sage says when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Well, two principles from verse 18. I can't wait to share the next one with you from verse 19. Come to verse 19 where the writer gives these drifting churchgoers, his counselees, his reason for having them pray all the more diligently, and this time it's for him. Here's what he says. I urge you all the more to do this, that is pray, so that I may be restored to you sooner. We're most likely correct in our assumption that the writer had spent time with this church before because his prayer request is that he would be restored to them quickly. This English translation is a bit misleading. Uh, It gives the impression that there may have been some contention that existed between them and him that caused a rift that needed to be reconciled. But uh, they were not at odds with each other. And they certainly didn't need to be restored in the sense of being reconciled. The translation restore is the essence of the Greek word behind it, but in this context, it carries more the idea of reuniting. The writer greatly desires to be reunited with this church. He obviously misses them and longs to see them again, so much so that he urges them to petition the Lord to this end. Pray to God that I could come to you soon. We get the impression that during his previous stay with them, he must have established a relationship with them that was built on mutual trust and love, which is likely the reason that the elders turned to him for help. They no doubt thought his voice would speak the loudest if the members would listen to anyone they would certainly be him. So the writer, only too willing to help, attempts to counsel this wayward membership from a distance through his letter writing. Now, I want to assure you that even though that's the case, the writer is not setting distance counseling as a precedent 
for ministering to others. You understand, don't you, that his circumstances prevented him from a timely personal visit? We think of the Apostle Paul who wanted to visit the Philippians, remember, but he couldn't because he was in a Roman prison. So he writes to them, sends off his letter with Timothy and Epaphroditus. He also was deterred by Satan, as he puts it, from visiting the Thessalonians again. So he writes and sends a letter off with Timothy. The writer to the Hebrews was in some situation, his circumstances obviously prevented him from a timely visit. What they were, we don't know. And in addition to that, keep in mind also that travel then was nowhere near as easy and as quick as it is now. We can cover great distances in an incredibly short amount of time, unlike those in the first century. Their feet and horses and boats were no match for our planes, trains, and automobiles. And now we have virtual meetings on computers that are instantaneous. No doubt a visit to this church would require more time than the church's spiritual condition could afford. So the writer had to address them quickly, and a letter would reach them quicker than he could. So for the time being, ministry by mail was the best he could do. But make no mistake, beloved, we would be safe in assuming that the writer would have much preferred to minister to them in person, as verse 19 indicates. I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you sooner. See that? There's no question that the writer would have wanted to counsel them in person. Or as the saying went in the Greek-speaking world, mouth to mouth. That always is the best and preferred mode of communication, the most personal, the most helpful, the most effective. The Apostle John wrote to the Asian congregation in 3 John 13, I had many things to write to you, but I do not want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Because of distance and the amount of time it took to move across the empire, and the writer could have been on the opposite end of the empire for all we know, the next best thing for him to do was to write. And that brings me to introduce our third principle. And it's the last one that we'll entertain here. I'll put it this way. Minister to hurting believers in person whenever possible for that is the most effective form of one-anothering. Minister to hurting believers in person whenever possible, for that is the most effective form of one-anothering. Beloved, nothing beats looking into the eyes of another person as you hear and see him communicate with all his mannerisms and gesticulations and body presence. There's plenty of good reason for this, not the least of which is the importance of nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is everything that's not verbal. You cannot see nonverbal communication in a text or an email. And many times, most of it goes unnoticed even on the screen. This kind of communication, by the way, is not is not as reliable as verbal communication since it has a greater chance of being misunderstood, right? You 
might take the way a stranger holds her mouth in the heat of a confrontation with, uh, as, a, as a smirk or a smug gesture, not realizing that that's really the normal way she holds her mouth ever since she had received facial reconstruction because of an injury. You might mistake someone's dramatic exhales as a sign of impatience because you didn't know that he's an asthmatic and often has trouble catching his breath. I remember as a young preacher making the mistake of judging from the pulpit how people were receiving my preaching on the basis of just their nonverbal communication in the pew. It's a very dangerous thing. I was convinced on one Sunday that a man who sat in the front row was paying close attention to every word I said because he sat upright on the edge of his seat with his gaze firmly fixed on me. You can imagine my shock when he confessed to me as I greeted him out the door, Pastor, please forgive me for daydreaming through your message. No reflection on you, I just had a bad night's sleep and I don't remember a thing you said. (laughs) Now that wasn't as shocking as what another man said to me who sat near the back of a back row with his eyes closed through the entire message. If anyone was trying to catch up on sleep, it was this guy. Until he asked me as I greeted him out the door, uh, Dr. Borelli, I found your last point, which I believe was the third sub-sub point under your last sub point, under your fourth major heading, extremely provocative and I might add convicting. I was shocked, all right. I didn't even know I had that many sub points. (laughs) Apparently, the way this guy listened to speakers was with his eyes closed to keep himself from any distractions. A person's nonverbal communication is very important, no doubt, but you have to see it in context. That is, when it accompanies his verbal communication. We We have to see how both work together in his presentation. It, 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 it gives us reason to ask for more data, especially when we talk to somebody whose nonverbal communication doesn't seem to square with his verbal communication. A husband gets a sense that his wife is angry with him, so he braces himself and asks her, Honey, what's wrong? To which she replies, Nothing. And he would have left it at that, but the way she said it seemed to suggest that she's not being quite honest, you know, with arms fold, nose turned up, and the eyes rolled. Oh, nothing. person who comes to my counseling room stammering and seems to be a bit out of sorts may have a medical problem that I'm unaware of and has nothing to do with his troubles. But when I smell stale booze on his breath, I know for sure what's going on. That's nonverbal communication. Beloved, in our day of social media, virtual is advertised as the way to go, which the lockdowns across the country last year during the pandemic helped to solidify in the minds of everyone. But even virtual is not ideal. It may be the best thing next to the real thing, but it's not the real thing. It's virtual. And it's imperative that we don't lose sight of the importance of in-person, face-to-face communion with the saints. And that's not always easy when social media rules the day in our country, where we've become used to texting people. When you're face-to-face, you see all, you hear all. 
You have a better sense of, of what a person means by, by hearing his tonal inflections, which are very difficult to represent in a text, no matter how many emojis you have at your disposal. There's much about American culture that Satan uses to vie for the Christian's attention. Social media can be more expedient than in-person meetings, certainly. It can be more convenient than in-person meetings. But social media platforms also make it easy for Christians and church ministries at that to manipulate their situations to their advantage and sinfully so. You can hide behind emails and texts. You can, resp- you can respond to somebody only when it's advantageous for you to do so. And sometimes that means not responding at all. Oh, you texted me? Didn't show up on the screen. It's more difficult to reach people. And some people like it that way. Was your call dropped? Or did the person hang up on you because he didn't want to talk to you anymore? Who knows? There's no doubt that it's easier to avert attention and responsibility through these platforms. Did the recipient get your message or not? Did she get it on time? How do you know? How can you be sure? It's also easy to keep up appearances or put on airs in a social media climate, specifically because much of what is prominent in an in-person meeting is lost in a text, in an email even a Zoom meeting. Just because these platforms have become the way of communication, or the way that communication is done today, doesn't mean that we have to accept it as the ideal form of church ministry and one another. They have their place, yes, but they they shouldn't replace the ideal model of biblical communication and local church ministry that, as the New Testament makes clear, is in person. Face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth. And we should default to that. And look to lesser forms of communication, either to accommodate in-person meetings or to be a substitute when in-person meetings are not possible. We know this, right? We don't have to be convinced of this, do we? We've all experienced the frustration of not getting a real person on the other end of an important phone call to the state, to the government, or to Verizon or Comcast when the TV's not working, or an airline to reschedule a flying. We know what that's like. How much time do we waste and how many pounds do we sweat off listening to some automated voice take us through a labyrinth of stages, pressing one and then two and then five and so on until we finally reach the right department only to be cut off because of some glitch? Or for a real voice, sometimes you get one, not right away, You're told that you are caller number 35 and that you have to wait 106 minutes. That's your wait time, 106 minutes. And if you are desperate enough to hang in there for that long, you hear someone greet you in an accent so thick that his words are unintelligible. And you spend twice as long trying to understand his English. And if you don't think that you're If you don't think that there are not ulterior motives behind this whole process, then you're very naive. This is all planned. 
you may have to you 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 may have to go uh, and work at this process to get your screen back on your TV, and it comes back. But you don't realize, of course, that all the new programs that you signed up for until you get your next bill. I signed up for these programs. When did I do that? They're figuring that you won't call back and go through the whole process again because, well, imagine if the church carried out ministry this way. Some actually do, the bigger ones. And there are a lot of people who don't mind because there are a lot of people who want to keep under the radar. They don't want oversight, like we talked about last time. It's so important. It's so important that we do things rightly because so much important stuff will fall by the wayside if we don't. You know, God sent his son to earth. The word became flesh. And not just so that he could take our place physically on the cross and take our hell for us that we might be saved. He did that. It was also necessary that he come in the flesh so that he could experience every temptation that we endure yet without sin, that he might be able to sympathize with us. That put him in a position as high priest to give us aid when we need help. Whenever we need help, we go to him and we talk to him. And he knows because he's been there. And he calls each of us to do the same, to come alongside in person and give those in need the words of Jesus who can relate to them. <clears throat> Let's not devalue that ministry with cheap substitutes for robust one another and beloved. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word to guide us, so grateful that it teaches and instructs us so very clearly, gives us wisdom that we might behave wisely in an age of fools where there is so much deception and lying, so much counterfeit and, and sub-redeemers and, oh, Father, so many other things that distract, that people latch onto and, and make much of. We pray that we will... Focus our attention on the word that directs us in the area of one anothering and of helping. We pray that we will, we will be effective in the way we minister to one another. We pray also that we would be much in prayer about our effectiveness, that we would call others that we help to pray as well for the same, for your glory, for your honor. And for, the, and for the benefit of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.